This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Everybody and welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is episode number 48 for Friday, November 12th, 2010. Once again, I'm Paul Fox, and not joining me from somewhere in the Fragrant Harbor for this episode is Mr. Kevin Ma, who is out on vacation. He is off uh, enjoying his family and visiting relatives, and so I'm a little bit sad he's not here to sit in on this episode with me. Uh, but filling in for him on the second chair, we have, uh, Mr. Tim Youngs. Tim, good, how's it good. going? Hello, everyone. So, Tim, what have you been up to? Um, I'm busy with work, of course, and, uh, on the film front, taking in the Hong Kong Asian Film Festival. Uh, it's quite yeah. a... Kevin's been talking a lot about the festival and, uh, seeing quite a few films. Did you see, did you see quite a lot during Fair the festival? Fair amount. Um, mainly focused on Hong Kong, uh, a bit of China, and some Japanese and Korean films. I, I didn't go all out like he did. Yeah. What? Any any personal favorite? Uh, I really liked a Hong Kong film called The Drunkard, uh, which is based on a, a 1951 novel. Uh, it's a very low budget film, and you can kind of see that. But they they really stretch their money. Uh, that that that's well worth a look if you like uh, a slower Hong Kong cinema. So this is no relation to like Jackie Chan's Drunken oh, Master. No, no. If you're going to. Uh, pick any kind of link, you may look to something like in, the, in terms of the, the visual style. No, I mean, it's based on a stream of consciousness, not action. So another film that I really liked at the HKIFF was the um, My Ex-Wife's Wedding. It's the new film by Lei Gong Lok. Uh, you probably know him from My Mother is a Belly Dancer. It's uh, a mainland, very commercial, uh, kind of romantic comedy. Uh, really, really pop pop film, and it's worth well worth a look. Uh, Lovers Discourse was an opening film that I enjoyed a lot. Uh, it's by Derek Jung and Jimmy Wan, who I uh, yeah. Speaking of Lovers Dis- Discourse, I was actually just uh, tweeting uh, with Ross from lovehkfilm.com about that. Um, as I was doing some of my calendar updates, that was supposed to get a release this month on the twenty fifth. And I just went over to the film website, and they've moved it now to January 2011. I believe it's got a January 6th release date. And I was like, you know, what's up? Why did they move it? Are they afraid it's not going to do well with some of the, you know, local competition and some of the Hollywood uh, holiday films that are coming? Uh, I was kind of looking forward to seeing that before I kind of went off on holiday. And uh, Ross was saying that, you know, the January time slot is like a dead zone because it's between these two massive you know holiday periods it could just be that it's the kind of film that has an audience that can only go so far and it doesn't really matter when you release it 
it's a bit of a crossover between kind of commercial cinema, pop cinema, and art house cinema. And people like Eason Chan can only pull so many people. Maybe box office would be similar in January. Um, hmm. I, I hadn't heard it was being delayed. Well, we are here to talk about movies. Uh, we talk about movies from Hong Kong to Hollywood and sometimes some other stuff in between. So before we talk about our movies this week, we do need to get to a little bit of news. So let's jump into that. All right, our first news story this week. Uh, we got uh, quite a few articles coming from our favorite site, Film Biz Asia. And this one is about uh, some Indian films, uh, in, a deal more or less, uh, between India and Hollywood, uh, that uh, there's been an agreement to develop film production and distribution and commercial cooperation and a bunch of other stuff um, between Los Angeles and the Indian Film Council. And this is also going to increase Indian film production in Los Angeles. Um, so this should be pretty interesting. Maybe we'll see uh, Shah Rukh Khan out there on the L.A. streets doing some uh, Bollywood dancing in the near future. Um, for one, I'm very interested in myself in seeing as much Hollywood cinema as I can. It's not that easy to come by except through festivals and things. So maybe this will increase the exposure slightly, uh, and that can only be a good thing. All right, our second bit of news this week. A little bit of tech news for film junkies, especially film junkies in Japan, uh, especially Apple fanboy film junkies in Japan. Uh, iTunes movies have arrived, and this starting this week, they've uh, started releasing uh, the ability to both buy and rent movies uh, through the iTunes service for your iTunes on the computer or if you have an iPhone or an iPad um, rentals, as usual, are available for about 30 days, and there's a 48-hour Windows viewing period. It's the same standard stuff if you've ever used the service, uh, the U.S.-based service. So this is a little bit of a leap ahead. Uh, we could talk about this in contrast with a place like Hong Kong, which does have an iTunes store, but it doesn't have movies and, and rentals available. Um, aside from Australia and New Zealand, Japan is the first country in Asia where iTunes is offering movies. So, uh, what's up with, you know, Hong Kong? Yeah, think, I think Tim? the whole situation's dismal. It's not only that we don't have movies or, or TV shows available, there's not even an iTunes music store in Hong Kong. Uh, I, it's, I mean, I, I'm sure that a lot of it is, a lot of the problem can, is in the record companies not, not wanting to do a deal. I, I imagine that's part of it. Another part is the huge fear of piracy. Uh, but it's quite incredible that, you know, when you look at, say, iPhone penetration in Hong Kong and the complete lack of rival uh, or, you know, successful video and music download services in Hong Kong, that, you know, Apple can't step in and do it. Yeah, I, I mean, I know that from the business end, this comes down to international distribution and distribution rights and deals and things that you know, companies will make with different companies for certain regions and things. And I really wish they would just do away with that because as a, as an avid consumer of media from all over the world, it's really annoying when, you know, something new comes out, you want to have access to it, you want to see it, and you're limited by region. I think I was talking with Kevin 
and uh, Ross last time because I had an issue where my my U.S. iTunes store was being uh, my credit card was being denied for some reason, and the, the reason was basically because I was you know they were recognizing that my IP address was not in the United States and I was renting and and you know making purchases and I've been doing this for years and it's you know every time they do an update or something the system catches people who are sort of on the international fringe you know and expats sort of bear the brunt of this I really wish they could just come to the conclusion that the internet is sort of like this you know this this other realm this other region and that as long as you have the ability to pay with a particular currency, you should be able to access those materials. And I know that that's going to be a very hard sell because you've got a lot of companies that make their money doing international distribution and they'd end up losing out. Uh, but it's an old archaic system and I think it's time to sort of yeah, move and beyond. Hong Kong doesn't really seem to be ready to move beyond video discs. Yeah. And, you know. Well, and, but the sad thing of it is, is you can go on YouTube right? I mean, we're going to talk about Vampire Warriors, and this earlier this week I was watching Mr. Vampire and Mr. Vampire 2, but I could go on YouTube, and I can find, like, old 1980s Hong Kong movies that have been cut into, you know, six or seven parts, and the whole thing's there, and nobody's going on to YouTube and saying, oh, this is an IP infringement, you need to take them down, and I mean, they'll do that with Hollywood stuff, but nobody, you know, nobody's taking the time or bothering with some of this old Hong Kong stuff, but I think that if they had a presence on a, on an iTunes store, and it was a very simple like ninety nine cent rental, you know, an all region kind of a thing, they did some kind of agreement that that would really increase the exposure. I'm sure people would pay ninety nine cents to rent some of the, that old stuff. Um, and it's just a shame that nobody's really out there sort of champ- championing uh, this cause in Hong Kong. Yeah, agreed. All right. Our next bit of news. Um, speaking of old movies, well, we've got a little bit of news about Celestial. Um, they're going to be doing a deal with a company or a, a distribution. I guess it's a, it, it as it's written here, as uh, Mr. Freighter puts it, if I can quote him, a new U.S.-based multi-platform programming network. I have no idea what that means. Um, but it's called Karma Loop TV. Um, I'm guessing this is sort of a cable or maybe uh, a channel on direct TV. Um, it sounds kind of like G4. Uh, if, if you're familiar with the G4 TV, with their shows like Attack of the Show and X-Play and some of the programming that they do, which is centered around sort of a young male demographic. Um, the article says that they've done a deal with Celestial Pictures for over 60 of its titles, um, including think classics like the 36th Chamber of Shaolin, uh, One-Armed Swordsman, Five Deadly Venoms, and the list goes on. Um, so this is this is going after a, sort of an 18 to 34-year-old demographic, um, which is sort of that same demographic that you'd find watching uh, G4, or I guess Spike is another one of these kind of channels. Um, it says to go on, uh, Karma Loop CEO says, uh, this is particularly true of the Shaw Brothers Kung Fu films, which have inspired everything from the names, rhymes, and album titles of iconic hip-hop stars like Wu-Tang Clan, to action films like Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill, to a vast array of art, video games, and fashion. Um, So they're really trying to sort of go into this, I guess this is what they would call the MOOC 
culture or MTV culture. Um, so I, hey, if it's getting old Hong Kong films, you know, more distribution, more access in the West. Right now, deals like this and the ones that have come before it have been a bit too focused on Kung Fu and horror. I'd love to see someone else branch out a little bit further, be a little bit more adventurous. You know, you can, you can see women spy films from the 60s. You could see, uh, you know, rather kitschy musicals, things that would actually have quite a, a good audience if people could discover them in the West. Uh, and Yeah. yeah. Um, well, for sure, the Celestial Library is pretty extensive with what they have. I just, I, I, I couldn't see them doing a Hong Kong Nocturne on a channel like this, you know, or, or, uh, you know, uh, dancing with millionaires or some of the musicals. I mean, I love those and I'm sure there are people out there who'd, who'd love those, but I think that they have this, you know, sort of image of, uh, a, a con, you know, this male consumer wanting to consume, uh, Kung Fu movies. And so they think Shaolin, they think, uh, some of the more classic, uh, martial arts. So with, with a lot of the current DVDs, either out of print or, or falling out of print, whole generation that will miss out on things like, you know, Temptress of a Thousand Faces or, yeah, the, the 80s type of things that you mentioned, films like Puppy, Puppy Love yeah. and the like. Yeah. Um, good stuff if you get a chance Absolutely. to see it. But we will, uh, yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on Karma Loop and see how they do. All right, our fourth bit of news this week. Um, the film If You Are the One, part two, uh, we were talking a little bit about this last time, it has received a January, January release date, um, and it will be released December 22nd in mainland China and January 13th in Hong Kong. It says the story takes up much where the first film left off, with the character of Smiley, played by Xu Qi, insisting that she has no feelings for either her ex-boyfriend or the quirky suitor uh, Qin Feng, played, played by Ge Yeo. And after returning from Beijing to Hokkaido, they go their separate ways until they're reunited later. So I'm a little bit uh, less excited now that I hear more about the plot. Um, it seems like more of the same from the first film. I don't know if it'll be enough to, if there's going to be enough there to sort of carry it through. We'll have to wait and see, I guess. But uh, I don't know, not, not as excited as I was. Any thoughts on the, this film? You excited to see it, Tim? Uh, I'll confess I fell asleep in the first. <laughs> Not a Shu Chi fan, are we? Um, well, yeah, but uh, I, I I just couldn't stay awake. Yeah, it was it was long. I, I remember thinking it could have been about thirty minutes shorter. I saw it at a film festival, and then you know you're you're just so bombarded with films. Uh, sometimes it's just hard to stay awake. All right, our final bit of news for East Screen this week. It seems to be becoming a bit of a habit with us, but we yet again have some more things to talk about for. 3D Sex and Zen, and I'm sure that makes many people happy. Um, there's quite a lengthy article over on Film Biz Asia with some updated news. Um, quite a bit to talk about there. I, I urge you to, guys to go over and read through the article if you get a chance. Uh, just a couple things I wanted to point out. Um, the director made a comment. He said, we completed filming last week in Hong Kong. And he says, adding rapidly, we couldn't have made it in China. It's forbidden. Um, nothing really new there. So he says uh, he expects large numbers of mainland Chinese to cross the border and watch it in Hong Kong cinemas. He cites the example of Ang Lee's Lust Caution, 
which he says earned 45% of its Hong Kong revenue from mainland visitors. Mm. So, uh, and I, if I remember correctly, this is being timed around a golden week period. Um, and they, so they are expecting a lot of tourists to possibly come through and watch it. The thing that surprises me is this thing, this movie is, says, uh, comes in at 130 minutes long. Um, and it's expected that 30 to 40 minutes of the is going to be sex scenes. Uh, which are racy enough to earn it a Category 3 rating or what you'd consider an 18 or, or only uh, rating in the West. And he says, to be a box office hit, though, it needs to be a commercial film as well as an erotic one. Um, so, yeah, uh, I don't know uh, if I want to watch a 130-minute long Category 3 movie. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's... Typically, these kind of films keep them, you know, they're like, if they're 90 minutes, they're too long. <laughs> um, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on this, Tim? Are you, uh, are you thinking to go out and see this, or are you thinking, going uh, going to give it a pass? I have, I have eye trouble, so I can't, I can't really take in 3D that well. Uh, mm. that, that's, and that's, if I thanks read to correctly, it. I think they say somewhere in the article that they're only going to shoot for 3D. There's not going to be a 2D... Yeah. There's not going to be any 2D of this yeah. available. I mean, maybe I'll have to, uh, you know, put an eye patch over the lazy eye and just grin and bear it. Uh, I think 130 minutes is way too long uh, for this kind of thing. And I'm really surprised they're going for something that long. I mean, if he really wants to pack people in over the Golden Week, wouldn't he want 90 minutes? Um, it just yeah, you, seems a bit odd. You'd think that. I mean, I don't know. I, do you think he, they're just going for the sort of Avatar-style bigger-is-better mentality? Maybe, yeah. or, or maybe they just don't know how to, you know, finesse the plot and, you know, cut for length. Yeah. Uh, he goes on to say that even producing the film in 3D presented interesting challenges. Casting Hong Kong actresses was difficult. Yeah. Most were considered too prudish, and mainland Chinese risked trouble back home. Um, it says, although he eventually managed to cast some ladies from both localities... Um, the lead is a Hong Konger, and Lenny Lam is from China. He also recruited two Japanese adult stars, uh, Hara Saori and Suyo Yukiko, if I'm saying those names correctly. Um, so, yeah, you've got a bit of an international cast. It looks like it's all set to cross various borders in its play, and uh, it looks like they're really going to try and push this thing as a high-end kind of film. Yeah. Although the trailer doesn't make it look that spectacular as a 3D picture, you know, uh, I, I'm very curious how they're going to pe keep people interested for something that long with, with, the, with the 3D gimmick. It is time to move on to our East Screen films for this week. We've got two films to talk about. Up first, Vampire Warriors, the latest Dennis S.Y. Law film. So if you don't know who Dennis S.Y. Law is, uh, consider yourself fortunate. <laughs> but if you do, you'll recognize that he's made a couple other films this year. 
most notably Bad Blood, which was, uh, when did that come out? January, February time period. And Womb Ghosts. Uh, Womb Ghosts was, I didn't see Womb Ghosts, but Tim, you saw that one, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, also, Womb Ghosts had Chrissy Chow in it, who's uh, one of the leads here. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about Vampire Warriors. Now, Dennis S.Y. Law is a director by hobby and I guess a land developer by trade. Is that is my understanding of that correct? Yep. Yeah, so uh, some people consider his his uh, uptaking of the director's hat as sort of a vanity um, title or, you know, these films of his are vanity projects. Um, I have to say, after watching this, I was... I had thought I'd seen pretty bad films before, and this one kind of redefined my notion of pretty bad. Um, basically, the story is about a young woman uh, played by uh, Zhang Lusha, who's a character named R. Uh, she's a vampire hunter, and she's looking for her long-lost sister. And she happens to be friends with Chrissy Chow, a character named Max, who's a vampire. Now, why a vampire and a vampire hunter are friends? Uh, they never really get into that. It's just, you know, details that never really need to be explored. Uh, also in the mix, we have the classic uh, actor Yun Hua uh, as a Hmong, who is a vampire that eats other vampires. And he serves as the main sort of antagonist here as he goes around uh, killing vampires. Now, it's it's kind of weird because the main character R is a vampire hunter, but she only hunts vampires who feed on humans. And fortunately, her friends, Chrissy Chow and her family of vampires, um, don't do that. They're kind of vegetarians, or they feed on animals, or sometimes uh, stuffed rabbits. Uh, but that's a story for later. So trouble ensues when Mung enters the territory, and he starts feeding on everybody. And in particular, he wants to uh, eat Chrissy Chow's character. Um, and so there are fights. Um, the action here is pretty pretty good, and that's about all I can say positive for the film. Um, interesting to point out, though, that Yun Hua, who is the is the antagonist here, was also the antagonist in the very first Mr. Vampire, which is sort of a classic, you know, cinema piece for um, these sort of horror comedy films in Hong Kong. But these vampires here are very much sort of Western-style vampires. These are not the hopping vampires of Mr. Vampire. Um, and it just doesn't... It, it's like they went into this project not knowing anything about vampires themselves. They just thought, we'll get a bunch of pretty-looking kids together as actors. Uh, we'll get a couple people who are really good at kung fu and martial arts, and we'll do a couple set martial arts pieces, and we'll have a lot of dialogue in between. And that's basically all there is here, because you don't get any real backstory about anyone. You don't get any understanding of the relationships between these people. You never really even get a strong understanding of who um, yun Hua's character, Meng, is, where he came from, you know, why he's there now. And it's basically they're on two or three sets that are pretty much empty, where all of this sort of takes place. So it's sort of this very limited window um, where this, this story happens. But the vampires claim to be upwards of 800 years old, but they talk like teenagers, you know. So you've got these girls, um, you know, who are vampires, and they're, they're saying things like, oh, what's a kiss like? We've never had a kiss. Um, it just doesn't make sense. It's, it's the, the, the script, there's no real thought put into it. 
And some would say, well, why are you expecting thought being put into a Dennis Law film? Uh, I was kind of hoping for more because the trailer actually made this look somewhat exciting. Um, there's just a whole lot of things that go on and they're never really explained. R, for example, who's a human, she seems to be able to fly. Uh, how, why can she fly? How does she, you know, she's, or, or, or sort of leap tall buildings, like kind of like the Hulk. Uh, you never know why. You never know where she got her training. Um, none, none of this is ever revealed, but she's really poor. She just lives in a, in a small metal shack, you know. She doesn't seem to have a day job. Um, she just goes around hunting vampires. Not like, you know, that's, you can, you can leap tall buildings in a single bound, but you can't hold down a day job. Um, also, we say, we can say that the vampires themselves, they're also living in sort of this industrial building. They seem dirt poor. Um, your 800... <clears throat> I gotta start again. So yeah, you're, you're an 800-year-old vampire and you don't know what compound interest is. There's just a, a whole lot of things that don't make sense. You don't even see a vampire, you know, an actual vampire bite someone until like 30 minutes into the movie. There's all kinds of pacing problems, way too much talking between the few good fight scenes there are. Um, quite a bit of wire work, though. Eh, it's it's okay to look at sometimes. Sometimes it's just done for the sake of pulling people up, you know, to hang them in the sky, and it doesn't really seem to, to have a purpose. Uh, the costuming here is kind of weird. Yunhua starts out in sort of a Qing Dynasty costume uh, that looks like he's trying to sort of play on the old sort of hopping vampire kind of idea, though he never hops. He, he later changes into sort of this all-black get-up. Um, the main character, Zhang, Zhu, Zhang Lusha, um, she wears these really weird kind of long jackets. And, you know, I was commenting to Kevin when we were watching this, she looks like she's a backup singer for Prince. Um, back in the 80s or 90s. So it's just got a, some really strange art direction. Um, it's just not very solid in a lot of what it attempts to do. And it actually makes the movie Bad Blood look really good <laughs> in a lot of ways. So uh, I was really kind of disappointed. I, I don't think I could recommend anyone going to see this in the theater. I'd say wait until somebody that you know gets this on VCD or something and try and borrow it from them. Um, but now... Tim, I think you enjoyed the film a little bit more than I did. Is that correct? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, if you go in there expecting trash, you you, you totally get it. And and you know, this is not a good film by any means. Uh, but you know, the, uh, just like take for example the jokes. Dennis Law has a way of dragging out jokes until they are not funny. But that kind of makes them funny because they are so spectacularly unfunny. Uh, the wire work you mentioned, yeah, it's great, but hmm, why is there a crane parked next to you know <laughs> that person's house or parked next to that building? Yeah, it just happens they, they to be make, there. Yeah, they make no no effort to you know disguise that thing. Uh, the, the completely bizarre sets, how Hong Kong is just you know derelict buildings. Ah, uh, it's 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 a really bizarre film. To be honest, I went in there expecting even worse, and and so. There was a bit of a letdown on that front. Uh, you know, Bad Blood is really an excessive film uh, with its ridiculous uh, twist and its really, really drawn-out scenes, like, you know, ten people filing into a room and so forth. This doesn't really go to that level of excess. 
so if you're if you're a fan of truly bad film, then you know. Well, I, I think the the point that really sold it for me was um, there's a scene where Chrissy Chow is she's hungry, she wants to feed, and she's got these pet corgi rabbits that are supposed to be like in this in this crate or something, and um, she gets an argument with her brother, who's also a vampire, about he, he stole one or something. So she reaches down, she grabs this, puts it up to her face, and pretends like she's feeding off it. And it's a stuffed toy rabbit. It's They couldn't even afford to go out and get a regular rabbit from, you know, the wet market or, or from the animal market or, or from anywhere. They, they just use the stuffed rabbit. And they didn't even try and hide the fact that it was a stuffed rabbit. So you, you're... I don't know if this is like lazy filmmaking or they're trying to be funny because they know the audience is going to recognize this. And, you know, they were, I don't know, they were under a time constraint and they just couldn't send somebody out to get a rabbit or they didn't want to file the animal license handling fee or whatever it was. It Maybe Chrissy Chow is just afraid of rabbits. Maybe. I, I don't know, you know, but I, I was saying to, um, I was saying to Ross or to Kevin you know, because I just watched the first Mr. Vampire that, that earlier yesterday for, for lunch. And they had a chicken, you know, in one of the scenes, um, you know, the they, they do a chicken sacrifice to get the chicken blood to fight the vampires. And they have a live chicken right there you know, on camera. They don't sh- actually show the guy killing it or anything. But, you know, they had the sense enough back then to say, we need a live animal. Here's a live animal. Roll camera, you know. They don't even do that here, so it, it, it's just it was it's it was disappointing, and and some of it you just don't know how to take, um, and some of the humor can be hit or miss. There were a couple funny moments, but nothing, nothing really substantial in my book. Um, there was one one joke that hit the mark, I would say. Yeah, what, what, what was that? <laughs> the, the the joke about Western food, Western cuisine. <laughs> uh, the few people who see it will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, so yeah, the we we picked out a couple uh, interesting aspects from the film. Uh, Kevin had a subtitle of the week for him. It's called "Let's Do the Man Thing," uh, actual subtitle from the film. Uh, and I quite I quite liked the one. How can I smile? I'm a vampire. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Uh, for me, uh, mine was a, a little bit of Chinglish coming from main actor Yunhua, and he says. Hello, my breakfast. And if you don't believe me, well, here it is. Hello, my breakfast. So, there you go, Yunhua. Hello, my breakfast. Subtitle of the week. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Kongcast.com for more. All right, our next film for this week, uh, the new film from mainland China called Under the Hawthorn Tree. Now, I haven't seen this. I'm actually going to be seeing this tomorrow. I'm forcing a whole class of my students to go and watch it. Um, But Tim, you've seen it, and you've actually uh, done a little bit of work for this film. So why don't you tell us a little bit about it and some of your experience? Okay, so yeah, I did a bit of work on the film. I uh, edited the subtitles uh, for it, and um, so... 
I was able to go through the script actually before seeing the film. Uh, I've now seen the film a couple of times. I can assure you that it's a much, much better film than Vampire Warriors. Um, basically, this is Zhang Yimou's return to uh, very small kind of rural pictures, uh, not using major stars. In fact, this is more one of his star-making turns. Uh, the film is set in the Cultural Revolution. So picture rural scenes of China in the 1970s. We follow a young girl who's played by a new actress called Zhao Dongyu, who has been sent out into the countryside where she is to help work on a curriculum. Uh, she's actually trying to become a teacher, and she comes from a family that has a difficult background politically. Uh, her family is essentially being persecuted, and she ha is on her guard to make sure that she doesn't make a misstep. Um, while she's out in the countryside, she comes across a dashing young man who's working at a geological unit and romance blossoms. Uh, when she's done with her uh, trip to the countryside, she moves back into, into the town and a long-distance relationship builds. Uh, but what's interesting is that this is a kind of a different take on the forbidden romance that you would often see in a romantic picture. In this case, the two are, you know, trying to sustain a relationship while she's trying not to set, you know, put a step wrong, while they're afraid of people spying on them. Um, and while they're going through what are essentially, you know, some hardships from the period. I'll probably leave, leave the plot description at that. I think a lot of the picture can be taken as a, as a mood piece, as something that's looking back on a specific period of Chinese history, as well as a very competent romance picture. Uh, you get a great feel for uh, the situation that these two, two kids are living through. Uh, the picture is uh, filled with fantastic art direction, costume, details. Uh, there are songs with really outrageous patriotic um, lyrics that you can follow and you know, take in. Uh, the picture is constantly gorgeous to look at, and uh, the two leads uh, are really a fantastic uh, score on the part of Zhang Yimou. Uh, Sean Du is a Canadian Chinese. Uh, making his debut, and him and Zhao Dongyu are, are really quite quite charming together on screen. Uh, the film is interesting for a variety of reasons, on top of uh, just being, you know, a a, a gentle romance, or a, a, maybe not a gentle romance, a difficult romance. Uh, in that there are also touches of political content, uh, you know, about trying to live through Cultural Revolution China. Uh, there are, if you are following the story as it goes along, you'll find interesting things like kids talking about political change, uh, references to pollution, and uh, at the time, future infrastructure projects. It, it's, it's an interesting picture. There's a lot in there if you um, get a chance to watch it. I highly recommend it. The, uh, it's really one for fans of earlier Zhang Yimou films like Not One Less and The Road Home and the like, rather than films like Hero and, and the like. What, what do you think in terms of the, you know, you said it does touch on some, some political issues. I mean, taking place during the Cultural Revolution, this is one of the most tumultuous times 
in you know modern Chinese history. Um, and there's a lot of controversial things, you know, from the historic perspective that have gone on. Does he avoid a lot of that for the most part in focusing on these two, um, or or is would you say the film is a little bit daring? You're really seeing what uh, these two would conceivably see. So you know, it's you're really stuck in their orbit. You're seeing how the girl is trying to impress, you know. Uh, pe- people in authority to progress to become a, a teacher, for example. The boy is from a privileged background whose father is, uh, you know, a big city type who, you know, has political favor, yet his mother uh, killed herself uh, for, you know, reasons that are explained in passing. Uh, there are some interesting touches where they don't, speak loudly, but they do give you a a hint of, you know, people, you know, uh, guarding what they say. There's there's a really interesting scene where they just wander up to the house of a peasant, say that they're from, you know, a certain uh, official background, and just walk in and eat. And the the woman, this, this peasant is seen in the background, kind of bowed over quietly cooking and, and keeping her distance. It, it's, 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 it's an odd little scene that's just put in there, but you get a sense that, you know, she is not very comfortable around these uh, people. I'm, I recall from uh, Chen, uh, Chen Kaigo's film, Farewell, My Concubine, um, uh, the scene with um, uh, Leslie and uh, Gong Li during the Cultural Revolution, there's like a struggle session going on, and um, they're sort of out on the street being persecuted, you know, and the finger pointing is going on. It's a really sort of intense moment that, um, you know, you can read through history books and find out that a lot of times these moments ended in violence and sometimes death. Is it, Does it ever get to anything like that in terms of, a, you know, the level of, of, of some of the tensions or, or some of the historical depictions of that era, or is it... Uh, well, you don't really mm-hmm. see them. But, you know, when the boy talks about his mother killing himself, or in in the girl's case, her father being in prison for, you know, his political views, then you know how these things are affecting Mm -hmm. the family. Uh, The house that she lives, that the girl lives in, is a mini factory, because really that's, uh, you know, that's just the situation their family has been put into. Uh, There's a lot of interesting little touches in there that... uh, you know, don't sugarcoat. And, and for that reason, uh, you know, it, it's well worth a look. So this film's kind of being touted as, um, um, you know, or marketed as like the, the ultimately pure, you know, sort of romance, I guess, in, in you know, in, in context with something like Sex and Zen 3D. This is like on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, right? Um Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the relationship between these two really does strive for a certain pure, pureness. Does it, does it, does it come across as uh, maybe a bit too pretentious in doing that, or do you find it genuine? I, I find it genuine. I, I think it's really affecting. Uh, you know, the, in, in some ways, it's a bit old-fashioned. I saw a preview screening with a, you know, a full house, and there's a scene where the the guy promises that he'll he'll wait for her forever, and you know the audience started snickering because that that really is old mm-hmm. style. Uh, but you know, it's very the, 
the guy really means it and he, he acts on it and you know it's actually quite warm well how would you rate this in terms of um the body of zhang Yimou's work as a director do you think this is you know up there near the top sort of in the middle or or a little bit further down oh, oh no it's, it's upper middle it's, it's it's a classy little production and it, they've made a, a, a good effort in terms of, uh, you know, period, trying to recapture a period. I, I suspect also that the director was adding in autobiographical elements, but I honestly don't know enough about him to be sure. You, you, you get that feeling that, you know, he's delving back into things that he remembers. going to talk a little bit now with Tim on his thoughts on the state of Hong Kong cinema, which is something we touched on in uh, our last episode, what we called the long cast, when we had uh, Ross <laughs> Chen on with us. We won't run quite that long this time, we promise. Um, but now that you're here joining us, I'd like to pick your brain a little bit because you've been around uh, in Hong Kong for a number of years. You've seen the changes that have occurred from the sort of the pre-handover cinema uh, until now. You've actually done commentaries and things for some of, some of the really early works. Um, so you've been in, sort of involved with cinema um, at, at various stages in the development of Hong Kong cinema. Um, so what, what are your thoughts in general on what you see happening today, um, especially in the context of something like we watched yesterday, you know, with, uh, with Vampire Warriors, which, you know... I mean, I know you said you kind of enjoyed it, but you, the only reason you enjoyed it is because your expectations were so much lower. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I went in there hoping for something bad. You know, it's a Dennis S. Y. Yeah. Law film. But at the same time, seeing a film like that is really not cool. It's just not the kind of thing that Hong Kong needs right now. If you, you know, and you're in the same position, you live in Hong Kong and you really enjoy Hong Kong films. But when you talk about it to a lot of people in Hong Kong, they find that so strange because the Hong Kong films are crap. Or at least that is the popular perception. Uh, you know, people talk with a certain pride when they say, oh, I don't watch Hong Kong films anymore. And a film like uh, Vampire Warriors just reinforces that. Somebody could go along to it, you know, seeing a rare Hong Kong film in the cinema, and they'll, they'll be there because maybe they're interested in Chrissy Chow or something like that. But they'll walk out of there saying, yeah, Hong Kong films are still crap. And it's not going to help the industry. Uh, you know, we're at a position where Hong Kong filmmakers should know better. If you look back, you know, look, if, if we go back to Hong Kong, you know, around the time of the handover and before, you talked about this last week, there was a large number of films being made here. They were really churning, churning out pictures fast. They were able to send films all around the region. 
it was all very nice, but they were also making a huge amount of garbage. And, you know, some people have called this hyper-production. You know, they were just making films so incredibly fast, often on pre-sales, and in the process, not delivering, just not delivering quality. And it turned people off. So Taiwan, you know, lost interest, and certain other places in Southeast Asia lost interest. And a lot of people got out of making Hong Kong film. Uh, the number of films in Hong Kong each year dropped. And so now we're in a situation where they're making about 60 films a year, and some of them are films like Vampire Warriors or, um, you know, Room Ghosts, which they, they, they're just not helping out. You really, you're in a situation where they're making fewer films. You should be striving to, you know, go for a bit of quality. You know, you've burned off people before. You don't want to be burning them off right now. Yeah. What what do you think um in terms of in terms of some of the uh you know mixed productions I guess you'd call them where you've got a lot of mainland financing coming in you've got a couple local stars and 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 maybe some uh, local crew talent you know uh, post production talent uh working on productions but that they're ultimately being designed for the you know the tastes and the sensibilities of a mainland audience, um, do you do you see that this is ultimately going to shut out the Hong Kong market altogether? I don't think it's going to shut out the Hong Kong market. There are, there are good examples where co-productions have been made and they have been able to appeal locally and they have been able to keep a certain Hong Kong character. There, but, you know, I think they're in the minority. If you look since the whole closer economic partnership, uh, arrangement came into force and people really went full tilt on co-productions. Hong Kong has been caught in the middle in a way. It, 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 filmmakers here have been trying to cater to a market that they don't truly understand. And at the same time, they're trying somehow to appeal to people in Hong Kong. Uh, you've got two really different audiences in Hong Kong and mainland China. And, you know, we don't find things funny the way people do in China in mainland China, and it works the other way around. This year we've had films, and you've talked about these films in recent shows, uh, Floating Scholar 2, or Legend of the uh, Adventure of the King. I mean, to mainland China, maybe a, a more unsophisticated audience in mainland China, they would work wonderfully, and I'm sure they, they may even be profitable. But in Hong Kong, you sit in the cinema, and people aren't laughing. You know, and oh, that's not very good. I mean, that, that that's not a, a really pleasant cinema-going experience mm. here. Um, then you have the problems of censorship, and I think Hong Kong's filmmakers, A, are a bit hamstrung because they you know, can't make films in the way that they've been used to in the past. Uh, if you look at the way the Japanese have become you know, the ultimate villain, uh, I think that's an awkward move for certain filmmakers who may have been making the villains speak Mandarin for many years. I think if you look also at censorship, I think people here are a bit too cautious when they try to make a film in China. And the result is that you feel like you're watching a cop-out sometimes at the end when everything is wrapped up a little too tidily. But on the other hand, you've got a few people who are making films, and Dante Lam springs to mind, who are able to still make uh, films that appeal in Hong Kong and China, but you know, spin their story in a way that 
can be effective and never makes you feel like they're, you know, taking a soft touch maybe. Um, and they're able to, by using, you know, co-production funding, make a really big, exciting picture uh, without, without, you know, feeling like it isn't a Hong Kong film. Uh, I think the low budget or the mid-budget area has a few good examples as well. Uh, Gallants, I, I, I guess you're with me on this. It, it feels like a really Hong Kong Cantonese film, yes. but you know it was able to get you know a certain amount of play in Guangzhou, uh, in Guangdong province, and I believe it broke even. I mean, in a, in a tough climate for making Hong Kong films, breaking even isn't a bad thing. Um, there, there's a few others that you know spring to mind, but it, it, the, 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 not everyone is there, and and I think it's it's a problem that Hong Kong is going to keep keep contending with. Mm. Um, I, I'd like to continue on a little bit, but I I want to interject. Um, we got a a really nice comment from a poster called Ji Song, uh, or Ji Song, uh, on our last episode. And he had some really interesting things to say with regard to the Hong Kong industry and uh, some of his thoughts. Uh, he, I guess he uh, used to watch Hong Kong films for quite a bit. Uh, he says he's originally from China, but he had moved uh, to, to the U.S. for a while, and he says he rarely uh, gets to see them. And he says the Hong Kong film industry's shift of focus to mainland has made their work less intimate. Uh, while the mainland covet their expertise and they themselves need the mainland's market. They don't know the mainland's audience as well as they did in Hong Kong, and they have a lot less creative freedom as they did before. Uh, if you're a Cantonese chef, uh, he says, if you're a Cantonese chef, I won't expect great Szechuan dishes from you, not unless you've been serving Szechuanese for a while. Um, I think that's kind of an interesting point. You know, we, we've talked about this a little bit before, but, you know, you get these films like Flirting Scholar, or um, um, what was the one with Richie, the, 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 the sort of semi-sequel? Adventure yeah, Adventure of the, of the King. King. And one of the comments that we often have that keeps coming back up is that these films have a lot of repetitive humor, a lot of repetitive joke. Um, you know, some of the gags people like Stephen Chow and others were doing back in the uh, you know early 90s in, in films. But it begs the question for me, you know, are these new in the mainland? And is that why they're trying them, you know, to try and see if if what once worked here will now work there? Or is it a case that they're just trying to pitch this to young teenagers who may not have seen those old films? I know a lot of the students uh, that I teach, when I talk to them about old Hong Kong films and I mention titles, they kind of look at me with these, you know, blank stares. Um, you know, if it's not Hollywood's, you know, 2012 or The Day After Tomorrow or something, they probably haven't bothered to consider spending time on it. Um, so as he's writing this, it, it, I think it brings up an interesting point, you know, are Hong Kong filmmakers sort of out of touch with what the mainland wants and what the mainland needs and is looking for? I, I think I think that's a really great comment. Uh, when it went up on the site, uh, I think I think he's he's right. I think Hong Kong cinema, Hong Kong cinema's filmmakers are really, uh, you know, outside. Uh, when 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 they're trying to cater to the mainland audience, they they maybe overplay nationalism or they they you know 
go in with a somewhat alien touch. Now, I mean, it's not across the board, and I think people like Pang Chung have been able to appeal to mainlanders to a certain extent. This is, this is in a, at a much smaller scale with a film like Love in the Path. Um, but, but it feels like a bit of a minority. Well, what would you, what would be your hope then, I guess, for the future? I mean, because there was a time when Hong Kong cinema was very low and sort of considered a base cinema. And I'm thinking back to, you know, the, the 50s era, 50s and the 60s, when Cantonese films themselves were all black and white because uh, they couldn't they, they couldn't afford the didn't have the budgets for color. And the color went to the, you know, sort of the Shanghai uh, Mandarin speaking productions with the bigger budgets and the, the, a lot of the musical pieces or the big, um, you know, the big sets and, and things that people will recognize from that period. And then that all changed in the 70s when Hong Kongers started asserting their identity and their language a little bit more. And that sort of really took off. Uh, do you think we're in a cycle now where, you know, Hong Kong films will sort of be in this period of looking like most of what needs to be done should be going direct to video or direct to YouTube in some cases. <laughs> um, do you think there'll be a resurgence in the future? It's not, I mean, these films were right up in the 1970s films, like uh, the house of 72 tenants and uh, the private eyes were, were huge hits and they were able to push back a Cantonese cinema and a certain local identity on the screen. Uh, you know, because the audience was here and supporting it. And, you know, if you look at 70s box office stats, you'll see Michael Hoy sitting on top for, you know, several years. Um, now, that, that's just not going to happen. But, on the other hand, there is a push toward a certain Hong Kong identity, a certain Hong Kong pride. And you, you've been seeing this grow for the past few years. Uh, and I think that's part of what has propelled films like Echoes of the Rainbow, People do want to see something that is very Hong Kong. This is not a very large audience, but it's enough to push a film, you know, into decent box office returns. Uh, La Comédie Humaine is another one. I mean, I don't think it's entirely a, a you know, filled with Hong Kong character, but it still delivers a certain Cantonese comedy that people can latch onto, uh, and it did pretty well in Hong Kong. Breakup Club. I mean, we can pan that as much as we do, but it was able to touch people. And, you know, there, there are other examples. Love and a Puff did quite well this year. Dream Home was another film that was able to latch onto a certain, you know, local local audience that, you know... No, I think, I think the audience right now uh, is receptive to these smaller productions, and they may be able to push them to, you know, the break-even point or a modest profit, but it, it can't come back at the scale that it did before. Uh, the Hong Kong people really need to support their cinema in a much, much stronger way because we don't have those overseas markets as well to help out. And if, if films are truly aiming for a certain Hong Kong character, they may not get that far in China. Yeah, we were, we were talking a little bit earlier in the news about um, the news about iTunes opening up films for purchase and for rent in Japan. Um, do you think that if Hong Kong had a greater push for technological utilization in things like, you know, digital distribution, digital streaming, even perhaps digital premieres, I remember a couple 
uh, you know, episodes back in October, I, I was talking about a film that had actually premiered on iTunes before it got theatrical release. And I was very excited. I think, you know, things like this um, are, are an interesting way to sort of uh, push the boundaries of technology and, and media consumption. Um, and I, I would really, you know, uh, as much as we love the theater-going experience, um, I would be excited to see something like Under the Hawthorne Tree uh, being premiered on iTunes or, you know, even a, you know, a production like uh, Vampire Warriors, you know, uh, having an option to see it there and having that option not just be a Hong Kong option, but be an international option as well. Do you think that, uh, do you get the sense that maybe Hong Kong might go to something like that in the future? Or would that be beneficial or detrimental to the industry? Well, I think they, they eventually they may have to come up with something, but whatever they come up with will probably be a bit too late. I think it would be beneficial. Uh, right now, these films like Echoes of the Rainbow and La Comedie Humaine do reasonably well in the cinema, and then they turn up on video and kind of get ignored. I mean, we, we go into video stores, and you just see these films sitting there and gathering dust in some cases. Uh, the, the video market here is not that strong anymore. Uh, if there was a way that people could have you know, reasonably priced downloads, uh, they would probably, you know, there would be enough of an audience to jump into them, maybe not long after the theatrical window. Uh, right now, the window before video release is about 30 days. I mean, you could look at a similar thing. You could use theatrical release as something that gets in, you know, the diehards and, and, and a few casual viewers, and then perhaps move on to, you know, a download system. Hong Kong people right now have... And, I mean, Hong Kong people now are a lot more comfortable with e-commerce than they were a few years ago even. And I think a large part of that would be things like the Apple, uh, their the app yeah. store. Uh, I mean, Hong Kong people never really got into the whole Amazon.com type thing or because everything is so yeah. close. You, why, why buy anything online? And so people never really gave it a shot. I think now people are a lot more comfortable you know people are buying apps as they take the train to work yeah. uh, and i think that now is a great time if the film industry really got off its behind to try to push this kind of thing i think for cinema it could be a great thing I think we will sort of bring things uh, to a close. Uh, just a few comments to talk about. We, we had mentioned before we had that really nice comment from um, G-Song over on the website. Uh, also had a comment again from uh, Gary, it goes by Tin Lun Lao, who had talked about an experience that he had, um, uh, I guess it's through the website uh, Alive Not Dead, um, some kind of a chat box or a, what, he, what he calls a shout box over there, um, where he had a conversation going on with uh, Nicholas Tse, talking about the industry. Um, he says that uh, Nick has said that uh, many people in the industry are just doing this to make ends meet, and sometimes it's not always about integrity, himself included. Uh, he said Nick Tse would always mention that he's working uh, to pay the bills. 
And this is something that we kind of talked about uh, last week as well, that a lot of people in the, in the industry are just there because it's their job, you know, and they want to keep it going as long as they can. And unfortunately, that there's just not as much work available as there used to be back in the 90s. I guess the everybody, you know, you don't have to be a brain surgeon or, or a DP to figure out that the work's going to be in China, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so, so often now, if, if you know, you, you're wondering where somebody is, that they'll, they'll be up north, uh, whether they're working on a film or whether they're working on TV yeah. as well. Um, so if you're out there listening and you have hopes and aspirations to come to Hong Kong to work on film, you might want to start brushing up on your Putonghua. All right, uh, I do want to make mention that we got a couple really nice reviews um, over on iTunes, some five-star reviews, uh, one by Ji Song, who we just mentioned, another by a gentleman called going by the name of The Mad as Guardian. He says, we provide an insightful, informative take on films uh, in this polished weekly podcast. Uh, some really nice comments, and we really do appreciate them. So if you'd like to leave us comments, you can leave us uh, comments over on iTunes, somehow that helps us out in some kind of standings or rankings or things that uh, I don't really understand too much about. Uh, but if you like the show, if you like what we're doing, uh, we do look forward to your comments. You can also leave us comments over uh, on our website at uh, www.concast.com. And if you'd like to you know, leave a thought or two over there, we'll usually talk about it on the next program. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter. You can follow me on my Twitter, which is uh, also over at the website. You can follow uh, Mr. Ma, who we are missing today, and we hope he's doing well. Uh, his Twitter is uh, twitter.com slash thegoldenrock, as one word. And uh, you can also get through to us by email. And if you'd like to have, if you'd like to send us a small audio file and have a question played here on the show, uh, we can do that as well. Um, Tim, you're not on Twitter, is that right? I know. I'm so backward. Yeah, you're still uh, not fully caught up on the social media wave, I guess. No, no. Web 2.0. <laughs> well, um, you used to have a website, right? Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's still, still there. It's just not a... <laughs> when was the last update? Like uh, 1998? No. Um, no. Yeah. After that. Uh, but you used to do a lot of focus on things like the vanishing art of uh, the sort of the movie marquee, right? I mean, I don't think we have any theaters doing those anymore now, right? Uh, no, no. I mean, uh, the Sunbeam was kind of painting its opera once, or at least painting the backgrounds until yeah. recently. But uh, no, actually, I, I'm, I'm scanning my pictures right now. It's something I do whenever I have a yeah, free Yeah, because, I mean, some of the images you had were were really nice to look at and nobody's doing that anymore it's a it's a lost art unfortunately yeah i think that's gonna wrap things up for this episode so as always until next time we will wish you good viewing and we'll see you then see you later